Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Again, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast, our confidence and our boasting is in our hope. Again, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Good morning. We'll get into that passage in just a moment. Um, you, you picked up from Larry's praying before. We have had uh, two of our senior saints gone home to be with the Lord in the last couple of weeks. Um, on Thursday, Warren Rowland uh, went home to be with the Lord, and that service will be next Friday morning here. Uh, yeah. Um, and then on the next morning uh, will be a service at Roland's funeral home for uh, Mary Nichols. And if, you've, if you're newer to the church, you may not know who Mary is, but Mary was actually one of our founding members or part of the, the Baptist church that we grew out of years and years ago. Many years, uh, a, saint, a saint here. She's just, uh, lived in Marshalltown, I think, for the last seven, seven years or so, um, be closer to family. But she's home with the Lord, too. So... Um, Pray for those families, and, and yet we, we know where those folks are. And so there's that, that uh, we grieve, but not without hope, as it says in First Thessalonians. So keep them in your prayers. Uh, but we have a, a task before us, understanding this wondrous passage. So uh, pray with me, please. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for the gathered uh, church to, to, to be brothers and sisters in Christ. It is an honor and a, and a privilege and a source of strength and hope and peace and uh, every once in a while irritation because we bump up against each other, but mostly it's a wondrous thing uh, to be part of your family. And so we thank you for that. And uh, we would just ask you now to open our hearts and minds to understand what you have for us as we uh, study your word together. Uh, help me to get out of the way so that what we see and hear is you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were a Jewish person living in the first century, as far as you were concerned, Moses was the goat. Moses was the goat. And you sports fans know what I mean by that term. Uh, I don't mean he was a domesticated animal with horns. I mean uh, that he was the greatest of all time. Goat, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. It's kind of a sports thing in the last few years. Uh, sports fans love to debate. Right, we love to debate stuff. Uh, they love to debate who the, the goat is in their sport, right? So if you're a big basketball fan, a lot of basketball fans would say LeBron James is the goat, 
even if you don't like the way he plays or whatever. And, uh, he just actually broke the record for the most points ever in a career, right? He broke uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time record. And a lot of people would say that makes LeBron the GOAT. Uh, if it's football, many will say Tom Brady. Again, maybe you don't like the guy, but it's hard to argue with seven Super Bowl rings. Uh, hockey, I don't know if we have any hockey fans here, but names like Wayne Gretzky, Bobby Orr uh, get tossed around. Uh, if you're talking about baseball, uh, Willie Mays, Babe Ruth, Cy Young, right? If you're more of a Midwesterner, maybe Stan Musial goes on the, on the list of people to be talked about. Those are all names you'll hear about in the, in the GOAT debate, who are the greatest players of all time. Uh, but when it came to Judaism, when, and actually, I think this would still be true for Jews today. Uh, but when certainly in the first century, there was no question, there was no debate who the greatest of all time was. The greatest of all time was Moses. It was Moses. And the reason, of course, for this is that Moses gave them the law. Moses was the lawgiver. Yeah, that whole freedom from slavery thing, that was pretty cool too. Uh, that, that was certainly a big part of it, you know, leading them out of Egypt. But really, it was the law. And his central role in, in being uh, the founder of the Mosaic Covenant, and really, therefore, the founder of Judaism, uh, God gave all of that to, to, to Israel through Moses. And so Moses was the greatest. Really, there was, again, no debate among first century Jews. Moses was the greatest. And that is why the author of Hebrews turns now to Moses. Uh, we're working our way through Hebrews here in our, in our church and uh, in the last few weeks, as we've kind of waded into this series this year, uh, the last few weeks we've been focusing on the supremacy of Jesus, specifically over the angels and really all the cosmic powers is how we've, we've presented it. And that's really a, one of the big themes. It's not the only thing going on, but it's, it's the overriding theme of the first two chapters. Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, as we get into what you and I call chapter 3, the author turns his attention to someone else that Jesus is greater than. So we're going to kind of mostly set angels to the side now. Now there's someone else Jesus is greater than, and it's Moses. Jesus is also greater than Moses. He's greater than the goat. Now, now this seems obvious to you and me. I mean, again, we sit here as Christians, thoroughgoingly Christians, 2,000 years later. Uh, obviously, Jesus is greater than, than Moses. But, but you have to remember, the original audience for Hebrews is made up of Jewish Christians, right? We talked about that in the opening, uh, the opening sermon of this series. Uh, and so these readers, you know, when we Gentiles are listening in, but, but, but for, for the most part, the original readers of, of Hebrews are steeped in Judaism. It's, it's literally in their blood. And so for them, it was not obvious. It's not obvious at all that Jesus is greater than Moses. In fact, this is a key issue for them. What's the relationship between Jesus and Moses? And, and so they needed, they needed what you and I maybe take for granted in this passage. They needed to be shown that Jesus is greater than Moses. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to follow the author's argument and show how Jesus is greater than Moses. And I really want to accomplish two things. The first is to do the text justice and understand why. I understand how it is the case that Jesus is greater uh, than Moses and why, why this is so important. And then when we get to the end, I'd like to talk about kind of, you know, the last 20% or so, I don't know, uh, of, of our time. I want to talk about why that matters, right? And so kind of more, more text-based and theology-based in the first uh, section. But then when we get to the end, <clears throat> I'd like to talk about three takeaways from this fact that Jesus is indeed greater than Moses. So let's get into the text. Let's understand it and, and see what's going on here. 
So verse 1, and I'm going to put the first two verses up on the wall like I did last week, just so we, we kind of can work through them together. Uh, verse 1 actually starts with, with us. So it starts with the readers, right? So the author addresses the readers. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. All right, so this first part uh, actually connects directly back to things we talked about last week. And so last week, you might remember we said Jesus is not ashamed Remember that? Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And I, I hope I mentioned this last week. The word brothers includes women. This Greek word, it's, it's really closer to the word siblings. And so, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, uh, we, we, might, we might say. We would accurately say. So it's brothers and sisters. And we talked about this last week. The point of it is, is that God has made us members of his family. Right? Through Jesus Christ, he's not ashamed to call us. On the contrary, he is glad to call us his, his brothers and sisters. And if we're brothers and sisters with Jesus, and if God is our Father, well, then that makes us brothers and sisters with each other. Right? So this, this idea of a family that we talked about. So, so he, he gets that at the beginning here. Uh, we're also holy. He tells us something else about ourselves. We're, we're holy brothers and sisters. And that also goes back to things we talked about at the end of chapter 2. Uh, verse 17, Jesus made propitiation. Uh, remember that word? Verse 17, made propitiation for our sins. That is, he offered himself as a sacrifice uh, that settled up with God's wrath, that satisfies God's wrath, and therefore removed our sin. Right? So that's what Jesus did for us. And, and he makes us, in so doing for us, he made us holy and is making us holy. It's an ongoing process, too. Uh, and, and that's verse 11. Jesus is the one who sanctifies. We're the ones being sanctified. That's verse 11 from chapter 2. Uh, and so you can see how this, this shift in the book starts with these connections, these connections to what's come before. You and I are holy brothers and sisters. Because of that, we share something. Right? Family members share something. Siblings share, at least they're supposed to. Uh, and, and so he talks about something we share. Isn't that interesting? You who share, he says, in a heavenly calling. Right? And, and that phrase, I think, can, can and should be understood as applying at two levels, actually. Uh, it's, it's a calling from heaven. Right? So God calls us to himself. Uh, and then it's also a calling uh, to heaven. Right? So he's the one who calls, so it's a calling that comes from heaven. But then it's also a calling to heaven, uh, which is to say this is what he's calling us to. This is where we're headed. Uh, that's actually, I, if I had to pick one of the two, I'd actually go with the second one because it's going to come up later in Hebrews, close to the end actually, Hebrews 13. Uh, we do not have an enduring city here. It's Hebrews 13, 14. We do not have an enduring city here. We are looking for the city that is to come. All right, Paul's going to talk about that in Philippians 3. He's going to say our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're eagerly awaiting a savior from there. That's why when, when, uh, when saints uh, leave this world, we, we say they are going home, right? We're not being all saccharine and, uh, you know, syrupy and kind of pie in the sky sort of stuff. It's, an actual, it's actually true, right? When, when, when a believer leaves this planet, uh, he or she, if, 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 if his or her faith is in Jesus Christ, that's what makes us a believer, uh, that person's going home for real. That's how the scriptures present it. And so it's this, that's this heavenly calling that we have. And so you open, the chapter opens with this encouraging reminder, right? This is who we are in Jesus. We have a new heart, right? He's making us holy. We have a new family, one another, with God as our father, and we have a new home, right? We, it's nice to be here, but uh, our ultimate home is in heaven. So, so that's where we start. That's this foundation. 
So the author's got our attention here in the first few words. Now he tells us because of that, because that's who we are, here's what we need to do. We need to consider Jesus. He says, consider Jesus. Uh, and that word consider, I'm going to underline it here. That word consider means to, to perceive or pay close attention to something. To pay close attention. Do that, he says, with Jesus. Pay close attention to Jesus. Then he gives us a description of Jesus. If you're going to tell me to pay close attention to someone, tell me what it is I'm looking for. Well, he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Uh, that word confession, don't get confused. He's not talking about uh, confession in the sense of um, confessing our sins. That's not this context. This is more like the confession uh, that Paul talks about in Romans 10, when he says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so it's, it's the idea of a profession. So really, we just say faith. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our faith. Jesus is the, the apostle and high priest. And both of those words are significant. All, all, a lot of things in these six verses are things that we're going to keep tracing and, and talking about as the book unfolds. An apostle is a messenger. That's literally what the word means. An apostle is a messenger. And so Jesus is the apostle of our, our faith. And so it's, he's bringing from God to us. He's bringing the, the faith, the message from God to us. But then he's also a high priest. And what does a priest do? A priest brings people to God. And so Jesus is, he's, he's the apostle, he brings God to us, and he's the high priest, he brings us to God through that atoning sacrifice, and a lot of things we're going to talk about eventually, we'll read in this book, Jesus is the mediator. He's the one and only mediator we need between man and God. That comes back to this, he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. So you've got that. Then he says something else about Jesus, and now we're beginning to shift to Moses. He says Jesus was faithful. He was faithful to him who appointed him. So that's the Father. God the Father is the one who appointed him. Jesus was faithful to the calling that he received from the Father. And now we get Moses, because it turns out Moses was faithful too. All right, we haven't talked about Moses yet in this book, but now we're going to talk about him. Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And that's probably a reference to the tabernacle. So Jesus had a, an, an appointment, a calling from God. Uh, Moses had an, an appointment too. It was the tabernacle and, and the law and the mosaic and all of it. But God's house is going to be used as shorthand. And so it, it gets us thinking about, about the, the tabernacle. So Moses was faithful to what God told him to do. Jesus was faithful to what God told him to do. So we actually start out with a commonality. If you and I are Jewish Christians wondering, where does Jesus fit vis-a-vis -vis Moses? Well, they, they have something in common. They're both faithful. Moses and Jesus were both faithful uh, to God. But now we're going to shift to the real point, which is that the other, and so the author is going to take us further. It's not just that Jesus is as great as Moses, which a lot of first century Jews converting to Christianity would have been tempted to think, right? So, okay, well, Moses is pretty awesome. We're going to put Jesus up here with Moses. And the author of Hebrews says, no, Jesus goes up here. Jesus goes up here. And so it's that Jesus is greater than Moses. And that's what the rest of this morning's passage, verses uh, 3, 4, 5, and 6, are going to lay out for us is how we know. Right? So how do we know Jesus is greater than Moses? You're going to need to prove that to me, uh, Mr. Author of Hebrews, whether it was Paul or Apollos or someone else. You're going to need to prove that to me. And so we have two, two ways we know. Right? So, so now I want to ask, how do we know? How do we know Jesus is greater than Moses? Well, here's how we know. First, he tells us, uh, Jesus has greater glory. 
Moses had glory, but Jesus has greater glory. That's verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory. Not as much glory, but more glory. More glory than Moses. See, at this point, you and I have got to remind ourselves of something that a Jewish Christian in the first century would not have needed to be reminded of. Uh, We need to remind ourselves that Moses is great. He really is great. And the author is going to assume we know this, but we have to remind ourselves, Moses really was great. Uh, So great, he saw God's glory. Right, this, this bringing up of glory here, I, do, I think what you're looking at in the text is fuller than what I'm going I'm to say here for the next couple of minutes, but this is the best way I could think of to, to help us understand the comparison that's being made. Moses saw God's glory. Right? No one can look on the glory of God and live, and yet Moses did. Right, do you remember? Um, I don't know if you've read through Exodus lately. If you're one of those doing the Bible through a year program, you're probably, you might be right about there, actually. You might be right around this part, I don't know. Uh, but in Exodus 34... In Exodus 34, we read that Moses would meet with God personally. There in the tent of meeting, God would would meet personally. And we don't know what that was like. If it was was probably in the cloud. I mean, I'm sure there was still some kind of a a veil going on there. But but Moses would meet personally with God. Exodus 34, 34. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil. So he would wear a veil for, for a reason you'll see why in a moment. But when he went in with God, he would take the veil off until he came out. And then when he came out of the tent and told the people of Israel what God commanded, what, what he, Moses, was commanded by God, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. So Moses would go spend time with God, and it was, in, it was so... Uh, personal and so up close that Moses, when he left the tent, he would glow with the glory of God through the veil, right? He was putting a veil on and they'd still see him glowing, right? Can you imagine what that must have been like? Glowing with the glory of God. But Jesus had more glory. Jesus had far more glory. And I'll refer you here to the transfiguration, right? I'll remind you the, the, the account of the transfiguration told in all four gospels. When Moses would shine, he shone with reflected glory, right? He would shine, and so it was like the light you see when you see the moon, right? When there's a full moon, uh, you, you look up and it looks so bright and so beautiful on a clear night, but the moon is not giving off its own light, right? The moon's just a cold rock, right? It's just a rock up there. It's not glowing with its own light, it's glowing with reflected light. That's what you get with Moses, that's what you have with Moses. The, 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 the glory that Moses shone with was residual glory. It was reflected glory. Compare that to the transfiguration. And you can read about it in all four Gospels. When Jesus goes up on that top of the mountain and, and he begins to glow, his light isn't coming. It's not a spotlight from heaven shining down on him. It's God pulling back the, the curtain and letting what's there shine out. And so the light of Moses, the glory of Moses is a reflected glory. The glory of Jesus is coming from within. It's from within him. It's it's from inside. Why? Because he's God, right? And and if you need further reinforcement of this point, what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration? We're told that Moses attends Jesus, not the other way around, right? It's not Jesus saying, oh, wow, it's Moses. What can I do for you? No, you have Moses waiting on attending Jesus. And so Jesus has more glory. Moses, Moses is a great man, truly a great man, truly blessed. God, God met with him in the tent of meeting. Uh, but Jesus had more glory. 
That's the author's point. He then gives us an illustration. We get a word picture from the author to understand this. He says it's like the difference between a, a house and the builder of a house, right? So this will help us understand a little more. Let me read the verses again. So it's three and four. Uh, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright. Most of us at least recognize that name, right? And and the reason we recognize it is that Frank Lloyd Wright is, is probably the most famous American architect. I, even, even if you don't know a lot of architects, I sure don't. It's not a field of interest for me. But uh, even if you don't know anything about architecture, you've at least heard that name, probably. Uh, the man lived a long time ago. He was born in 1867. He died in 1959. So before most of us of any kind of a memory. And over the course of that career, he was actually an architect, a significant architect for almost 70 years. Uh, he designed more than 1,000 structures. Most of them, I believe, I believe in America. More than a thousand structures, buildings, different kinds of things. More than a thousand. But, but here's the thing. Unless you're really into architecture, and I don't know, maybe some of you are, but, but unless you're really into architecture, you probably don't know which buildings Frank Lloyd Wright built. You might know one, two, maybe three. I actually, Laura and I visited one 30 years ago when we were on a vacation, so I know one <laughs> that Frank Lloyd built. Frank Lloyd Wright built. It's in western Pennsylvania. It's called Falling Water. Really cool if you ever get a chance to see it. I couldn't name a second one. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you could. Maybe you can name two. Maybe you can name three. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is most of us don't. We, we don't know the buildings the man built, but we sure do know the man's name. And if you didn't before, you do now because he really is one of America's greatest homegrown architects. That's, I think that's, that helps us understand what the author's saying in verses 3 and 4. The builder is greater than the building. The builder is greater than the building. And a big reason for this is that the building wouldn't exist without the builder. Right? The, the builder can exist without the building. <clears throat> if Frank Lloyd Wright had gone into something else and never built any buildings, he still would have lived. <laughs> but the building cannot exist without the builder. And that's what you get in verse 4. Every house is built by someone. He says every house has a builder, but God is the builder of all the builders. God is the builder of everything. So if we take that principle, right? again, he uses this illustration of a house and an architect. Uh, if we apply that to Moses, Moses built Judaism. Moses built the law. Moses built the tabernacle. Moses, you really could argue, built the whole nation of Israel. But Jesus built Moses. So he's actually he's reaching back to chapter 1 where we learn that Jesus is the creator. Moses built a lot. He was a great man, but Jesus built Moses. And that makes Jesus even greater than Moses. So that's, that's uh, defense number one of the, greater, of, of the supremacy of Jesus over the greatest of them all. The second argument he makes is that Jesus also has a greater position. So he has a greater position than Moses, greater glory and greater position. And that's verses 5 and 6. So the author actually comes back to faithfulness. He'd used this word faithful uh, twice in verse 2. Now he comes back to it. Uh, He tells us Moses was faithful in all of God's house. So back to that same connection. Uh, That's verse 5. And then just like verse 2, Jesus was faithful as well. That's verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house. And so again, there's a commonality here. Moses and Jesus, both faithful. However, their faithfulness came from radically different positions. 
They were faithful in radically, from, from radically different positions. And that's the part that makes Jesus greater. So yes, both faithful, but Jesus was, is greater because of the position he occupied. Uh, and so let me read it. Pick verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So Moses was faithful as a servant. He was faithful as a servant. And it's interesting the way the author does this because he actually uses a word for servant that's pretty unusual, actually, in the Bible. It's, it's, uh, it's not the usual word for servant. The most common word we run into for servant is a word that means slave, right? It, it, it's it's a, the usually, when, like when Paul describes himself as a servant uh, of Jesus Christ in most of his letters, when he opens them, he'll use the word doulos, slave or servant. You can translate it either way. But it's the idea of one who is, serves by compulsion, right? That, that's the usual, typical, it's the most common word for a servant. Uh, the word that the author uses here is different. It's, it's not a slave. It's a, it's a trusted servant who serves willingly. And the, that with the emphasis on that idea of willing service. And so this is, this is actually a higher ranking servant is what you have here. Uh, it's actually closer to something like an assistant or an aide. And as I was kind of just thinking of different historical ways this word was used, a, a good, um, ancient ways it was used, a good modern analog today maybe is like a, a president's chief of staff, right? So if you think of the, the president, uh, he has a chief of staff who kind of runs his life for him. Uh, and that, I guess that's how that works. I don't know. I guess he runs the staff, definitely. And that, but that chief of staff, so that chief of staff serves the president and his administration, but he or she can quit at any time, right? It's a voluntary Position that person can say, "I've had enough of this stuff," and 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 leave, and 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 that's sort of what this word means. There's some other examples, but they're a little more obscure from from ancient literature. But but it's like an assistant or an aide. Moses is the only person in the New Testament of whom this word is used. Not even Paul. This word isn't even applied to Paul or, or any of the apostles. Moses is the only one who's ever described with this higher form of servant. And so again, you see, we're reinforcing this. Moses is great. Right? He was very special. He had this special, important position before the Lord. Uh, in fact, he was God's friend. Right? It's actually in that same part of Exodus I, I referred to earlier. It's one chapter earlier, but uh, Exodus 33, verse 1. Uh, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And so there's, we're not denigrating Moses in, in, this, in this book. No, Moses was great. The, the Jews were right, but Jesus is greater. That's the point. Jesus is greater. The reason Jesus is greater is that Jesus is the Son, or the, the second reason. We already talked about one of them, but that's the one in verses 5 and 6. Yes, Moses was a, a trusted, wonderful servant, but he was still a servant. He was still a servant. Jesus, meanwhile, contrast, is God's Son, and it's better to be a son Actually, I'm going to take a little detour next week, and we're going to talk about the difference between being a son or a daughter versus being a servant, because I, I think we need to fill in on this from Galatians. Uh, it's better to be a son than it is to be a servant. Uh, one of the books I'm using with, with Hebrews, uh, it was written by a pastor named Ray Stedman. He's kind of a previous generation. I think Stedman passed in the early 90s. Uh, but, but he wrote a commentary I'm finding very helpful on, uh, on, um, 
on Hebrews. And he tells a little story from his own life that I thought is really helpful here. Uh, when Stedman was a very young man, in fact, he was in high school, uh, he had the opportunity to visit a cattle ranch, a cattle ranch in Montana. And he was there as the guest of one of the cowboys, right? So there's this cattle ranch up in Montana and uh, one, of the, one of the hired hands, one of the cowboys who, who worked this ranch, uh, Stedman was friends with him. So he said, come visit me at the ranch. And so he did. He went and he hung out with his friend for a while at this ranch. Uh, Stedman writes, we slept in the bunkhouse with the rest of the help. We had no access to the main quarters. We rode a couple of rather scruffy horses, and I spent the whole time helping my friend do his chores. Sometime later, uh, Stedman uh, had a chance to visit the same ranch again, but, uh, and he didn't say how this happened, but by that time he had become good friends with the ranch owner's son. And the ranch owner's son invited him to come back and and visit. And here's how he describes it. Uh, What a difference, Stedman writes. Now we had the run of the big house. (laughs) We ate in the main dining room. We rode the best horses the ranch had to offer. And we could go anywhere we wanted at any time. That's the difference between a servant and a son. A son has greater access. He has greater resources. He has greater influence. It's just all better. He also has a greater house, which is actually the one the author picks up on specifically in verse 6. Moses was faithful over God's house. See how they both have a house. Moses was faithful over God's house. Again, reference to the tabernacle, but Jesus is faithful over an even greater house. Jesus is faithful over a greater house. And this, again, he's not going to defend that now. It's going to be actually a main subject as we get into deeper into Hebrews. There's a, several chapters, two or three chapters focused on the tabernacle. Right? And Mo, that's the house Moses was faithful over, that Moses brought all of that, that and what it means. And it was pretty great, right? The tabernacle, and you can read about it in Exodus and the, and the books of, of Moses, and then you get the temple pattern on the tabernacle. It's pretty important stuff, pretty awesome. But it's all going to be superseded by what Jesus does. And so Jesus is building an even greater house. And here in our text, in verse 6, that greater house is us, it's the church. That's it. He says so. I'm not making stuff up here. It's verse six. And we are his house. We are his house. And so Christ's house is greater because his house, well, there's lots of reasons it's greater, but the one that I think stands out most here is that his house is all over the world, right? The tabernacle had to be in one place, right? It was in one place and it wasn't anywhere else when it was in that one place. I've been leading, Laura and I have been leading this Bible study through First Samuel. Um, and and we, we half, the, half the time, we're not even sure where the tabernacle is, right? Those of you in this study, you're like, yeah, like several times we've stopped and we're like, where's the tabernacle again? Like it could only be in one place. Not true with the church. The church is wherever he sends us, wherever we go, wherever we, we go. His house is everywhere. And so he has the greater glory, he has the greater position, and might even add a number three if you're a note-taker, he has the greater house. But again, I did, we're going to develop that one more as, as we get into later chapters. So Jesus is greater. Right? That, that's his defense of the, of, of the argument. Yes, Moses is great, but Jesus is greater. He has greater glory, he has a greater position. Now I want to ask a, a question, like I said, it was what I wanted to do at the end. I just want to ask, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? I mean, it's a pretty strong case. When you, when you read it on its own terms and you understand why this was an issue for the original readers, I'm persuaded. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is, is greater than Moses. But so what? Why does that matter? And, and the answer actually is it matters a lot, more than we would think at first blush. 
In fact, again, a lot of what we're going to be looking at in the coming chapters will keep coming back to this issue. It's going to keep coming back to how Jesus is greater than Moses. The supremacy of Jesus and all that he did and what he stands for over his supremacy over that of Moses and what Moses did and what Moses stood for. And so I'm glad I can say that we're going to talk about it in future weeks because it means I don't have to explain it all this morning. And so what I want to do uh, in my last few minutes here is just give you kind of an overview of of three key themes, really, and they're all takeaways. I think they're all very uh, application-oriented in terms of what they mean for you and me today. So so here they are, three. uh, If we ask the question, why does it matter today, here's three takeaways. Number one, because Jesus is greater than Moses, we better focus on Jesus. We, we should focus on Jesus. That's takeaway number one. And, and it goes back, I mean, and that's, we should focus on Jesus instead of Moses, but it also just stands up straight on its own. We should focus on Jesus. And it goes back to verse one. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And I said it before, the word means to pay close attention. It's not a casual glance. Pay close attention to something. Do that. Pay close attention to Jesus, to him. Uh, The author's actually going to say something very similar. It's a different Greek word, but it's the same sentiment uh, in chapter 12. Probably a more familiar verse for a lot of people. Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Again, it's not the same Greek word. It's a companion word, but it's the same idea. Focus on Jesus. Give Jesus your full attention. Don't, don't squander your life on lesser things. We only get so many, so many years, so many days. Uh, don't squander your life away on lesser things. If you're a Christian, Jesus should be at the center. Focus on Jesus. That's takeaway number one, his supremacy over Moses. Takeaway number two, his supremacy over Moses, the supremacy of Christ over Moses also means that you and I are free from self-effort. And this is a big theme in this letter. Uh, and, and, and we are free from self-effort. And, and I'm struggling with my wording here. What I mean by self-effort is this. I mean that we are free from the burden of having to save ourselves through our own human efforts. We're set free from that. We are set free from the burden of having to save ourselves through our own efforts. That's what the law represents. All this stuff we're going to look at in coming chapters, that's what the law represents. It represents salvation through human effort. That's the law. That's the heart of the law. And Moses gave the law. I mean, he was faithful to what God had him do, but, but Moses gave the law. And so in the context we'll be looking at, and even this morning are looking at, what Moses represents, what Moses represents is salvation by our own efforts. Right? Pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps, as it were. Now, at this point, we need to be clear. If we're going to start talking about the law, we have to remind ourselves that the law is good. The law is good. It says so. Right? So it says, Roman, uh, there's a passage in First Timothy, I think it was, but the one in Romans 7 is the one I wrote down. Uh, the law is holy. Romans 7, 12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we're not denigrating the law. The author's not denigrating the law. But there was a problem with the law. It was kind of intentionally built in to show us our need. But there's a problem with the law. And the problem with the law is that it depends on us. It depends on human effort. If we could have kept the law, if the Jews could have kept the law, right? If if any human being could keep the law, we would be saved, right? That would save us. 
But nobody could do it. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a trick. God said, here it is. You want, okay, you want to try to do it on your own? Here you go. Do this. Do, do that. And nobody could do it. Not even Moses. Even Moses fell short. The guy who delivered them out of Egypt to take them into the promised land wasn't allowed to go into the promised land because he fell short. And so the lesson for that, the lesson, one of the big lessons of, of Moses' experience and, and of the law in general is that good works can't do it. Religious rituals, all those rituals you read about in Leviticus and Exodus, religious rituals can't save us. Human, mor- human morality uh, can't save us. No matter how close we get, we still fall short. No matter how hard we try, we still fall short. It's, you've heard this kind of illustration before. It's like trying to swim from San Francisco to Tokyo. Right? You can be the best swimmer ever. Right? You can be so good at swimming, it makes, looks like Michael Phelps is splashing around in a mud puddle. That's how good of a swimmer you are. And you're still not going to get close. You might get 20 miles out from the shore, right, from San Francisco. You've still got like 6,000 miles to go, and then a shark eats you, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's impossible, right? That's the idea. It's impossible for us to be saved by the law of Moses. But thankfully, Jesus is greater than Moses. You see why this is so important? Jesus is greater than Moses. And Jesus did for us what none of us under the law of Moses could ever do for ourselves. Which means we're free. We're free. We're free from the burden of self-effort. Right? We could never make ourselves good enough to please God. And embracing the gospel is embracing that. Yeah, I can't do this. I cannot save myself. But thankfully, I don't have to. Because Jesus did it for me. Jesus uh, made us good enough to please God, right? We don't have to please God with our good works uh, because Jesus pleased God with his good works and and with who he is, and now that is uh, imputed, that is assigned to us. And so we're free. We're free from that burden, that guilt, that shame, and and from that, that burden, right? That's the word I want, that burden of having to try to be good enough to please God. However, that does not mean we can do whatever we want. All right, so there, here's, the, here's the tension. Whenever we talk about this issue, and it's definitely going to dominate this book, uh, we, yes, we are free from the burden of self-effort, but we are called to be faithful. That's the third takeaway. Yeah, now that G, we, we are saved through, through, by grace, through faith alone, but now that Jesus has saved us, he calls us to be faithful. And you see that in the, in the last part of verse 6. Um, I actually glossed over it before on purpose so that we could talk about it now. The last half of verse 6 says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So we're saved by grace through faith. It says so in Ephesians and a lot of other places too. Right? It's not from ourselves, it's the gift of God. But that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. Right? It's the beginning of the story of our walk with God. Now that we're saved, we're called to be faithful. And you get that, you get it in, in the emphasis on faithfulness in this passage. Um, you picked it up before, twice in verse 2, once in verse 5, once in verse 6. Uh, we're, we're told about faithfulness. Twice it's Jesus being faithful, twice it's Moses being faithful, and they're being held up to us as an example. He's saying, now you're going to do the same thing. Now you're called to be faithful just like they were. And, and that's actually, I might not say that if it wasn't for everything that comes next, because that's what the next section is about, right? If you, if you have a, an analog Bible and you're looking there, um, the next section is another one of these warnings. Remember I told you uh, 
Hebrews is, is built around uh, a series of warnings. Uh, the next warning is coming up in the next section, and, and it's all about being faithful, right? The next section is basically an extensive exhortation to faithfulness by the people of God. And so you'll get a verse like verse 12, right? Verse 12 says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving, it's the same word as faithful, an, an evil, unfaithful heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. Take care, he's going to say. Watch out, that doesn't happen to you. Instead, be faithful. Be faithful. That's what it's saying. And so, yeah, we're free. We are free uh, from the burdens of legalism, right? We're free from, from needing to be good enough to earn God's approval, but that freedom doesn't mean we just check out and live however we want to live. And, and again, it's this tension. It's a tension we're going to wrestle with in the book. Uh, I go back to verse 1. Uh, we are holy brothers and sisters. Right? Being sanctified, being made holy. We share in a heavenly calling. Right? That, that's, that's where we're headed. That's where our calling comes from, and it's where we're headed. And so that's our identity. We're these holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. Jesus wants our lives to match. He wants our lives to match our identity. And so we'll have this exhortation to faithfulness. And so, so that's takeaway number three. Uh, now that we do belong to Jesus, uh, he calls us to, to hold fast to him. And it really ties in with the focusing too as we focus on him that's the key that's how we be faithful we, we focus on him so be faithful as he calls us to be faithful would you pray with me please lord i want to ask you to um, help us do that help us to live this out uh, we thank you for this good news for this gospel by which we are saved uh, and i want to pray for myself and everyone who's hearing these words that you will um, help us to, to keep our attention focused on Jesus um, in, a, in a way that defines our lives. I don't mean we walk around thinking about Jesus every, every breathing second. We have work to do and things you've called us to do, uh, but that our lives are centered on Jesus, that we consider him in every decision we make and, and think about. Thank you for this freedom we have in the gospel. Help us to re accept it and to stop running in the hamster wheel of, of trying to make ourselves good enough. And Lord, help us be faithful. Now that your Holy Spirit abides in us, now that you've set us free from that, uh, may, may those who come behind us find us faithful, and may you find us faithful, Lord, as we walk with you in, uh, in each day. And it's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen.